Welcome to the Purpose and Principles podcast. Today I'm with my guest, Elisa Garn. And Elisa Garn is currently the executive brand strategist for GBS Benefits, a full-service broker based in Salt Lake City, Utah. She, her experience includes more than 15 years in HR, and of course I've seen a lot of her news and sharing on LinkedIn, and particularly around all of her work she does with the Salt Lake Sherm, co-founder of Disrupt HR SLC, um, Forbes Human Resource Council, just lots and lots of different positions where she's been helping people understand how better human resources creates a better human experience. And I really wanted to talk about that with her today. So I'm really grateful you could join us on the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, fantastic. And, you know, just tell me, what's your story? Like, why HR and why do you think it creates a better human experience? We'll just get right into it. Yeah, I am one of those stories where I fell into it. Um, I think that it found me. I had a great mentor who some people say that they were pulled into a certain direction. I think I was pushed into mm-hmm. this direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really like that. I mean, it was a, an interesting evolution of going through that phase of life, you know, early 20s, not really knowing what I wanted to do. I didn't mm-hmm. take the traditional route and go to college. Um, so I took a, a a seasonal job actually at a ski resort mm-hmm. and I wasn't planning to stay more than a season. I just wanted to ski for free, which hmm. was awesome. And I did have those opportunities, but at the end of the season, this mentor of mine uh, sat me down and said, look, I think that you have a knack for HR and this profession. And uh, my first response was, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not really the principal's office HR kind of person. That's not what I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And he was really the first one to sit down and talk to me about what HR was and the impact that it had on a company and brought light to the stigma that HR has externally, especially to many employees and in the media, uh, and changed that, uh, that imagery to me as an HR practitioner, you know, it's much more about this human experience element and employee experience and making sure that you're an advocate for your people, but you're also championing the growth of the business and representing the balance of both of those worlds. Mm-hmm. And I love that you had that distinction because where, where you originally thought about HR and what would it end up being for you was certainly quite different. I think a lot of people have had that kind of confusion. You know, is is HR the the birthday cakes and balloons group, or do they actually do more than that? And of course, you and I both know that it's far more than that. Um, and has it evolved though for you? Has it evolved over the years as HR has become more of a strategic role in how we achieve our business results? Absolutely. Well, I'm even just my own career, yes, but the profession itself, I I get to speak a lot with universities and students. And one of my favorite things to, to do with that is see just these bright, shiny eyes about this profession that I care so much about, but from mm-hmm. a very different lens than how I grew up in it. So I, um, I use the analogy a lot that HR professionals tend to fall in one of three categories. Mm-hmm. You have city cop HR people, And city cops are standing in the middle of the busy intersection, traffic's coming at them, they're blowing their policy whistle throughout the day. It's very, very reactionary. Mm -hmm. And this tends to be the transactional HR that most of us are familiar with, policy, procedures, uh, benefit admin, payroll, you know, it's the stuff that has to happen to keep the wheels in motion in business. Mm -hmm. You also have city planner HR people, and these are people that typically are 
executives, uh, you know, directors, they're much more methodical. They're, they're looking down at the city and saying, okay, I've been working with the city planner and the commissioner, and I know that we're going to be building a new neighborhood over here. So what infrastructure do we need to include in that? You know, where mm-hmm. do we put in additional plumbing and electricity and how many more traffic cops do we need to hire? But they're not necessarily connected to the day-to-day hustle that's mm-hmm. happening. And the third type, which is actually a recent one that I've added, because I used to say you mm-hmm. fell in one to two camps. Mm-hmm. But I think that the adoption of the importance of culture and humanity within the workplace has bred another profile, if you want to call it that, Mm. which I call the mayor of the city. Mm. So the mayor HR people are the ones that are out, you know, kissing babies, shaking hands, uh, understanding the pulse of the community, listening to the, the residents that live there to understand what is happening, what are we, you know, what do we need, how can I best represent you to make this the best place to live or mm-hmm. in the workplace, best place to work. Um, what's interesting about that is when I share that analogy, people can immediately think of, oh yeah, my HR person is that person or that person or that person. Mm-hmm. And it's very uncommon that you have somebody that can represent adequately in all three or be very good at all three because mm-hmm. it takes a different skill set to be each one of those individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes you'll have a little bit of overlap, but uh, as far as the progression that I've seen in the profession and even my own journey, uh, many of them do start transactionally. Many of them start with you're kind of thrown into that, you know, middle of the street with your whistle and expected to keep the streets clean and everybody's safe and happy. And eventually with enough experience, you know, you may get promoted to some of these other roles and take on additional um, responsibilities, but the, the transition of business needs from an HR professional is substantially different. I mean, we are expected to be experts at 10 different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times we, we are not. <laughs> and so we get a little defensive sometimes when somebody comes and tells us that we're not exceeding expectations in all of those worlds. Um, but business is more focused now on how are we attracting top talent? How are we retaining top talent? What are we doing to get that competitive edge mm-hmm. uh, through our people? Because so much is changing with artificial intelligence and automation that is changing the landscape of really what HR has been historically, even within the last few years, but I would argue probably the last decade is where we've seen such a significant shift. Yeah, it's interesting because your distinction between the three, I think, is also very real. And it's interesting that you say, you know, it's hard to do all three of them, that you really do. It's it's kind of distinct people in different roles. Um, How has this mayor role, if you will, this cultural focus helped to influence maybe some of these more tactical roles in terms of planning and implementation or the policy cop? Has it influenced them and changed their behavior a little bit? Yes, yes. I I love that question because I I never want to alienate HR people. Mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to feel like I am telling them that, that their career path is now insignificant, they're no longer important, they're obsolete, and they should just retire already. I never want anybody to feel that way. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there is something to be said that if you're not proactively looking at the changes that are going, that are, and are going to continue to impact what you're doing Mm -hmm. will be obsolete because if you're not, um, constantly creating that value proposition in your role, mm-hmm. eventually the business will make the decision for you that, you know what, we, we're going to go this other direction. We need either a different person or we found this other solution. So my opinion on that is um, the traffic cop person, you know, how they can inject some of this, um, uh, these resources or be more strategic. Like I, I think one of the lenses you can look at that is um, maybe it makes sense to outsource your payroll because Mm -hmm. 
there aren't as many touch points along the employee journey with the payroll experience mm -hmm. as there is the benefits experience or the onboarding experience. And so if you're looking at where you have to cut resources in terms of where you can provide the most value to your people that is going to give them that best human experience in the workplace, you have to look at it strategically to say, well, which ones matter most mm -hmm. and where can I have the most emotional connection to my people and which ones do is, does it make sense to send elsewhere to free up my time to become an expert in those type of things. Yeah, excellent. I, I, I'm 100% and I'm, I'm nodding as, as you talk about this because I think it's really important that we understand what is the priority. And a lot of leaders have said that this is a priority for them, um, but words are easier easier said than done. And I think that that's, you know, been a challenge for a lot of companies. And so while there's a lot of them working to create a better culture, what are some things you think they can do to address these issues and to really get culture to become more important in the workplace? Uh, you have to start with understanding how to speak the language of the C-suite. Mm -hmm. And some people argue with me, and I think that it's a fair point that how come we're always the one having to adapt and adopt to others? Mm -hmm. But if you really want to become meaningful and build relationships and trust with your audience, you have to connect with them on their level. And the analogy I give to counteract their opinion is, okay, so if you're teaching a child who's five mm -hmm. and you are teaching them from your level of philosophy and understanding and knowledge base and expecting them to comprehend, is that is that a fair way to approach it? And, mm -hmm. you know, of course, the logical answer is no. You need to connect with them on a, on a five-year-old level to make sure that you're articulating in a way that makes sense for what they're going to comprehend. And I think the same should be said for HR professionals, regardless of their level, whether they're an admin or a recruiter or a coordinator or a CHRO VP, you have to be able to go in and understand what matters to the person you're talking to. Mm -hmm. To get them to connect with the messaging is one point, an important point, but also translating it in a way that's a storytelling, you know, create the pain, offer a solution, execute on, on the strategy. All of those things need to come together if you're going to gain the credibility to be able to have that same level of, of respect and expertise within that group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that credibility is huge, whether it be with the C-suite or with the people you're actually trying to impact in terms of culture. How many times have I personally seen, you know, where employees have said, hey, I've seen managers flow in and out of here over and over and over again, each one with their own effort or plan to put their thumbprint into the culture or to focus on how things are going to be different now. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of employees will still just keep their head down saying, yeah, we'll just ride this person out as well, right? Like, we're just waiting yeah. for this person to rotate oh. through. And, and, and leaders just keep flo floating through every two to three years and employees just get a little bit cynical. Mm -hmm. So that credibility factor you're speaking of, I think is huge. Well, and rightfully so. I mean, if I put myself in that employee shoes, mm -hmm. Uh, I've actually been that HR leader where I've gone in and I'm bright eyed and bushy tailed and I have all these great ideas and mm -hmm. I know exactly how we're going to solve all the problems and the employees are just kind of, you can tell there's this glimmer of hope mm -hmm. behind the sarcastic rolling eyes, right? Like they, they want so badly for it to be the way that you're explaining it to be in this, right. this picture that you're casting, but they've been burned so many times, whether it's by a leader, whether it's by an HR person whether it's just being worn down by a, you know, a negative corporate culture, mm -hmm. all of those things have an impact on them. And it does create that barrier of trust. Absolutely. Uh, but getting to that point of credibility to be able to influence the C-suite to engage in these culture conversations mm -hmm. and the impact that it has, you know, I, I never go into a, an executive meeting 
using the words that I use within the HR community, mm-hmm. even, even the word culture for one, it's become a little bit of a cliched yucky, like, what does that even mean anymore? Like everybody's saying it and mm-hmm. uh, people are translating it different ways. So for me, I go in and use the language of, okay, so what are we trying to accomplish in the next six months, in the next year, in the next five years as an organization? Where are we headed? What's mm-hmm. our growth plan? Do we have an exit strategy? And then from there, I can use the language of of the C-suite to say, okay, well, based on that one particular thing, you know, for example, let's say we're looking at a merger acquisition activity in the next two years. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, we know that what our sales service, like what what people are going to want to um, acquire of our company is likely going to be our talent because whatever we happen to do, you know, prioritizes and specializes in the, in the high level of knowledge and expertise of the people that we have less so in our product offering because it's not terribly unique. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if I know that now, then I'm approaching it as, okay, well, then we have to have certain things in place, um, as a company to attract those people that are going to want to come here, but then even more importantly, stay here, especially if there's any talk of merger acquisition, you know, down the road, because that affects them. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at all the things of, okay, if we know that these people are primarily going to be 25 to 35 year olds, um, college grads, maybe young families, we need to build our benefit packages to support that because those people are going to be caring about different things than, you know, your 40 to 50 year old demographic. Mm-hmm. So just coming in it from, from the conversation of I'm speaking their language, but I'm still representing the people side of the business mm-hmm. um, to create that alignment, to get to where they want to go. But, you know, just like the CFO is representing the money side of the business and the COO is representing the operations of the business. I should be there representing the people side of the business. Right. And creating that competitive advantage that it inevitably brings if we do it right. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people have said that, right? And and as we mentioned a moment ago, you know, easier said than done. But it sounds like what you're doing is saying, let's get into the tactics of it. And when we talk about the culture, I think a lot of people also forget that the culture isn't made up of just that benefit package. It's really made up of all the policies, all the systems, all the processes that we put into the company. And some of those processes and policies need to be modified if we really want to change and build the culture. It's Mm -hmm. not just, you know, telling people that we're going to celebrate today, but then we beat them up with something really arbitrary or, or, um, uh, the, the, something that feels patronizing, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I've seen even good efforts come across as pretty bad, uh, if we're not careful, we just need to be really reflective of what are the processes that are really communicating that this culture is going to change. You know, I worked for a company once we had a, um, the company had acquired, they grew mostly through organ, or, uh, merger, ac- uh, merger activity over the mm-hmm. last decade or so. And so as one of the acquisitions, they had acquired a company who was owned by an attorney, an mm-hmm. employment law attorney. So they took that handbook because that was a stage where they're like, yeah, we probably need this. And they just took it cookie cutter and replaced the name of the old company, put in the new company. And it hasn't been touched since, which is really scary for an HR person coming in. Um, But what I noticed was um, this particular company, the culture there was very, very familial. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it was a family owned business, a lot of relationships in the business, high tenure. I mean, I think their average tenure was like 12 or 13 years. But I was going through the handbook um, just as an employee, but then also, you know, as a refresh to make sure that we were in compliance. Mm -hmm. And the first page that I read was this this awful, awful quote unquote letter from the CEO, which mm-hmm. was basically, you know, we we expect loyalty from all of our employees and we mm-hmm. expect you to to be 
solely dedicated to us at all times. And any, you know, it, it basically was like a policy and it was supposed to be this welcome introduction letter from our CEO hmm. who, I mean, if you connected the two, like you would never in a million years think that he wrote that, which hmm. he didn't because it wasn't in his voice, but it also did not represent the culture of who we were. And so at the point that you're bringing up, I totally agree with. I mean, you have to look at things like that, that you might not be paying attention to that. And it's a check the box item that goes in a book that, you know, you're sending out to new employees and you've done your deed, but that's already immediately for the first person coming into your company, their first day, making that disconnect of, wait a second, I thought how I felt during my interview was this, but now this is what's in writing. This doesn't, jive you know yeah. which one is right right so it's an immediate disconnect if you don't have things like your policies and your procedures and your benefit programs and um you know all of those things all of those touch points along the employee journey if they don't align to the values that you profess to emulate and the the practices that you have the traditions they celebrate then you are you are doing more damage than you're doing good I completely agree. Completely agree. And how many people have people have walked into an office place where beautiful posters are on the wall, but they don't feel like that's what's being communicated or how they're being treated in the work. Um, and that can be very, very, um, well, it's disheartening to say the least, but a lot of people end up spending time then, you know, on the on the company time looking for a, a new opportunity, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the statistics there are pretty alarming as well. Yes. <laughs> yes, they are. And, and of course, we've known that. We've known that for a long time. You know, people don't want to leave a company. They typically leave a bad relationship, right? It, whether it be a bad leader, a manager that directly relates to them, or someone who influences them in a negative way in the business. So you can have a beautiful benefits package, but boy, if leaders are mistreating people, it's just, you're going to fall flat. It's just not going to work as well as you'd hoped. Yeah. You know, on the adverse of that, though, you know, there's, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. There's a mm -hmm. lot of things that need to be fixed, but there are some people that get it right. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one example that comes to mind about, uh, I'm blanking on which company it is, but one of their core values is innovation. Mm -hmm. And so they, um, they have what they call, uh, they do like an annual award celebration at their employee party every year. Mm -hmm. And they do all these different awards, which to me as an office fan, I always think of the Dundies, but I'm right. sure it's, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but they do these different awards and they celebrate different successes and they shout out, you know, for great achievements and everything. But one of the most prestigious awards that they give out is called the yard sale award. Mm -hmm. um, and the first time I even heard of this term was from our HR expert, Joe Tate. And the idea of that is if you're a skier, you know, if you're, uh, if you're going down the mountain and you have an epic, epic fall, mm -hmm then you've got gloves over here and you've got ski poles over there and you've got just stuff is everywhere. And it just looks like a, a yard sale basically. So the idea behind that is what, what is the biggest failure that we're celebrating as a company? Mm -hmm. You know, what is something where we went big, we tried an experiment and it just completely failed and it didn't work at all. But instead of looking at that as a chastise opportunity of, you know, putting somebody on a performance plan or firing right. them or maybe just alienating them passive aggressively, which we tend to do. Um, they take that opportunity to celebrate that and say, you know what? You tried something new. That's mm -hmm. a success. It doesn't matter what the outcome was. And it was an epic failure, but you know what? We learned from it. We grew. And that I think is such a cool opportunity to entrench what your values are in a very real actionable way that people can say, I feel that there's an emotion tied to it. It's more than just like you said, words on the wall or, mm -hmm. or words in a handbook or, you know, something that my manager is telling me that's on my performance plan. 
that's actionable for it to help me connect emotionally to that business and understand that I feel safe. You know, I feel like this is something that is, if I do these things, this is what's going to be rewarded and acknowledged. Um, and like those opportunities, I don't think we celebrate enough. It's easy for us to talk about the ones that don't get it right, but there are several cases where companies do amazing things that do get it right. Absolutely. 100%. In fact, I've, I've like you, I've seen great examples of that as well. Places where, you know, people do recognize the right things and they are appreciating people in a very meaningful, a very genuine, a very sincere way. We're celebrating our failures in a way that doesn't embarrass anyone, you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, recognition and the key to me to good recognition, and I typically talk about this in terms of the best recognition I see is typically about 10 seconds better, uh, just 10 seconds more to make it better because it's specific, because it's meaningful to that person, to that individual. And my biggest litmus test for recognition is, does it communicate respect? Does mm, it communicate like respect? That. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And if it does that, then we, are pow- then we have power. If it doesn't communicate respect, then even great recognition can be weaponized. Have you ever seen recognition, you know, where people used it as a political game? Where oh. they can seek to separate and people? And can smell people? it a mile away. They right? know when it's real, when it's not. <laughs> And then recognition well, turns out terrible, time, right? Like, if you if you tell somebody, oh my gosh, the worst ones are where you can tell. Like, I, are you being? I know you're giving me a compliment, but I feel like this is very condescending. <laughs> totally, totally. And we've all been recipients of that kind of recognition as well. And so that's when you know the leaders who were kind of on the fence on whether they should do recognition. When they see recognition being done like that, they look at HR and say, "What are you guys thinking about? Why are you telling me this is important? I see how it plays out in my teams, and it's terrible." But yeah. the, the difference, of course, is just how the recognition is being deployed. Not that recognition is bad. It's just how it's being deployed. Well, you know, it goes back to that. When I talk about human experience, there is the employee experience has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. In EX, you know, there's experience management platforms out there. Mm-hmm. But to me, human experience takes it a higher level of you're not just looking at somebody in terms of human capital. Mm-hmm. You're not looking at that person of, okay, employee, we expect you to do this work in exchange for this money. Those things are important. Employee experience is a big part of the HR profession and really what we should champion. Mm-hmm. But the higher calling is human experience where um, you know, a great friend and mentor of mine, Carl Sokia, has has run with this quite a bit, this human experience idea. Um, but it's about bringing and celebrating the entire iceberg of the human that is in your workplace. Mm-hmm. So typically when we hire somebody and we allow them to come in, we invite the top of their iceberg only, their skills, their expertise, you know, things that we can physically see about them. Are they friendly? Are they enjoyable to be around? You know, what are they going to, how are they going to help my company grow? But there is this huge underside of that personal iceberg that is what's going on in their personal life. Are they struggling with pain? Do they have mental health issues? Do they have, um, you know, maybe they're going through a divorce or they've got financial troubles or, you know, maybe they really struggle with self-esteem or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff, even though we don't talk about it, it's coming with them every single day. And for years and decades and centuries, we have ingrained in people leave that stuff at the door. As soon as you walk through these elevator doors to come up to your office, I expect that to shut off and I expect you to be, um, you know, engaged in your work and productive and doing all the things that I need you to do and deal with all of that other stuff when you clock out for the day. Mm-hmm. And that's just not realistic. Not only is it not realistic, but it's inhumane. You're expecting mm-hmm. people to act like robots and it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, So when I talk about this, it's not the expectation that we all become camp counselors and it's our responsibility as companies and managers to solve those problems for those people. 
but it, it is an invitation to allow them to be human at work. They yeah. should be, yeah. you know, I mean, there's, there's so much value in just being understood and listened to and accepted that will immediately be that tie and connection to the best strategic retention strategy you'll ever have. You can throw the perks out there. You can pay hundred percent for medical coverage and you will attract a certain level of candidate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But if you really want to tie into a discretionary effort and help somebody feel like they are a human that matters in that workplace, even if, by the way, you have to make the hard decision to lay them off or furlough them or something happens in the business, mm -hmm. if you treat them like a human and make them feel respected and valued to your point about that recognition, they're going to understand. It doesn't mean it's not going to hurt mm -hmm. and it's not going to affect them and they're not going to react, but they're going to understand and feel like you you heard them you see them and that honestly like there's no better equation to tap into loyalty and that extreme uh, that um discretionary effort than than that yeah that is and it's and it's free by the way <laughs> yeah yeah well and as you mentioned you know all the all the le the leaders out there that get nervous and think gosh i should have had a counseling degree rather than an engineering degree or my project <laughs> management you know background because they feel like they they don't know how to take on some of this work. And and the truth is, is like you said, I don't think we have to do all that work for people. We can't. But what we do need to do is be empathetic, right? And understand that there are whole humans coming to work. One of the unique challenges I've been sharing with folks lately is that, you know, the generation that's in charge right now, in general, they still have pensions, lifetime benefits, and big retirement packages. But the people that they're managing have none of that. Mm -hmm. And they never will. And so, you know, the, the, the theory that, you know, that they grew up in, the life that they grew up with, meaning the expectation for those secure benefits and those secure retirement plans are not what this younger generation is living with. And so when we, when we criticize or talk about you know, the younger generation as being needy or greedy, I actually think it's a bit of a misnomer in many occasions. I think there's a lot of hard workers in every generation. It's just that this new generation does not have the lifetime benefits that this older generation grew up with. Right. And that's a yeah, different I mean, that's a different reality. Be, you used to be able to stay at a company over, you know, a tenured amount of time and like you said, you you might have had discretionary pay increases here and there a mm -hmm. little bit. But really what you were working toward was exactly what you're describing. Mm -hmm. The long-term pension, the long-term security, the long-term stability for you to be able to transition at a, at a point that you were ready to transition. Mm -hmm. And now what's interesting to me is as, you know, this micro generation of being a Xennial, which is right in between Gen X and Millennial, um, for me, it's, it's very common for me to, you know, three to five years is a full term at a company for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. But that's because there's really nothing in it for me after that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I stayed past five years, I might get like nominal pay increases after that, mm -hmm. but I'm probably not going to be learning much more. So I'm not gaining any more on a, you know, an um, intrinsic level, but I'm also not going to be able to financially gain any more at that organization likely because there's only so many positions when you get to senior leadership opportunities with the company that you're with. Mm -hmm. So having to jump around from job to job or what it's perceived as jumping around really to me has more to do with, look, I'm leveraging the experience that I gained here and what I've been able to contribute for that next step to help secure that financial stability of my future. Because I'm not, I mean, other than a 401k, which is primarily funded by myself anyway, mm -hmm. 
um, there's really not a ton of gain for me to stay in those organizations. It really isn't a loyalty factor. It's a self-preservation factor. Mm-hmm. And I tell candidates all the time when I've, when I've worked in HR departments and we'd have people come in and, you know, Hey, I've got a counter offer. I'm going to leave. Do you want to, is the company mm-hmm. interested in retaining me? I am the biggest advocate of like, first of all, I don't negotiate with terrorists. So mm-hmm. if you're coming in trying to get a higher offer, not going to work. But secondarily, if, if this is a better offer for you, don't have angst about leaving. Mm-hmm. Yes, we, you know, no, it, it struggles. It's business disruption. You know, we're going to have to replace you. We're going to have to train someone. But you are the CEO of your life. Mm-hmm. And if you put CEO against CEO of the business in your life, and our CEO had to make the very, very difficult decision to do layoffs or to do cutbacks or whatever, because we had to, to retain the business, he would do it mm-hmm. or she. But in your case, employee, if that's what you have to do as CEO of your life and your organization Mm -hmm. to find a better opportunity that is going to maximize your potential, then you should do it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make it not a hard decision and it doesn't mean that it doesn't have impact, but you shouldn't not take those opportunities just because you feel a sense of, you know, I don't know, like it's Mm -hmm. not loyalty Mm -hmm. at that point. It's, it's almost like the yuckiness of, I'm going to damage relationships if I better mm-hmm. my life, you know, that just doesn't make sense to me. Right. It's it's just a different expectation in general, isn't it? I mean, things have just definitely evolved and the way that we expect things from where we were in the past. And I, I just think as leaders understand that, we'll all be better at making better decisions as we become more empathetic uh, Absolutely. Towards, yeah. towards the different conflicts that are there. Yeah. And you'd asked a question earlier, you know, about the... Um, Where's the profession going? And maybe this is just more my opinion on business in general, but mm-hmm. I've, I've already started to see it. And I think we're going to continue to see it more um, as a lot of things do get automated. But I think we're going to see more people leaders in organizations and mm-hmm. less, less emphasis on management of tasks, because I think there's so much being done that already automates that. I mean, you have different platforms that are available for task management, project management. And I do think that is a very important skill set. But I think we're going to start to see more adoption of people leaders in organizations that are not HR professionals, but are specifically put in roles to lead teams. Their Mm -hmm. whole responsibility is to elevate and manage the success of a group of people that has less to do with managing their tasks and, you know, holding them accountable for, uh, you know, whatever work they said they were going to be doing. I do still think that there will be value there, but um, more and more companies, you're starting to see these these people leaders emerge, which have been a little bit of a spinoff of HR, you know, the business partners. Um, but now they're specifically there to champion the success of the high performers and getting the rest of the team up to speed to, mm-hmm. to, to operate at optimal efficiency. Yeah, I, I agree, actually. And I, I spend a lot of my time in plants and in, in leadership training programs where we're actually coaching people how to be better coaches. Just how do you ask better questions? How do you lead as a better coach in that role? And, and so I'm spending a lot of time in that world as well. I agree with you. Yeah, it's so valued, too. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I can't think of a better way that a company can invest money into that you know i mean if you if if you have two or three people leaders that are elevating the rest of your organization from c players to b players and preferably b players to a players that is so hard to quantify on paper but if you if you are paying attention to it and you have enough time and energy to dedicate into putting the metrics in place you will see absolutely an increase in productivity efficiencies 
and profitability. You will. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a fact, but it's so hard and so much work and not many have the skill set to put those metrics in place to be able to, for one, sell it. And then two, be able to manage it and then story tell it back to, you know, analyzing the data to reflect, um, to reflect that increase. Alisa, this has been a great conversation today. If uh, as we kind of wrap it all up and put it all together, particularly around, you know, where you've seen HR going, is there anything else you would like to leave with listeners today? Anything that you've learned along the way that you wish you would have known earlier? Anything to kind of put this all together? Well, one of my favorite uh, things to leave as a takeaway with anyone I chat with is uh, this is something I've learned the hard way, but don't don't be afraid of challenge. Mm. I think whenever you see something that is scary or you don't know how to do it or you're afraid of failing or you're afraid of how it's going to be perceived or whatever, that imposter syndrome, we'll set that aside on a shelf. But don't be afraid of those challenging opportunities because that truly is where you're going to grow the most and you're going to, to um I don't know, recognize isn't the right word, but but realize how much you really do have in, inside of you. And in order to grow that confidence, like that's that's the whole point. You know, anytime you're flexing a muscle, every time that you flex it, it gets a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger. And then the next time you go to raise that bar, you're going to be surprised at the simplicity of it because you prepared, you know, through going through the hard times of, of all of those muscle movements along the way. And it's the same thing with your career journey. Don't be afraid of challenge really, really just run toward it, embrace it, learn what you can. And if you do fail, learn from the lessons and move on. Like you're no worse off than you were before you started. Lisa, thank you. This has been a really nice conversation. And for all those who've been listening, we've been listening to Elisa Garn today, Executive Director for the Utah SHRM and a lot of other functions and roles that she supports and, and manages as well. It's been a real privilege to have you on the show, Purpose and Principles today. It's awesome. Thanks, Max. I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. And uh, to everyone that's been out there today, thank you for listening to the Purpose and Principles podcast. This is Max Brown. And until next time, we'll talk to you again. Thanks. Thanks.